0: Information. So at this time, if you'd silence your cell phones, and today we're honored to welcome Mark Campen. He's a native of Knoxville. He's a graduate of UT with a Bachelor of uh, Science and a degree in Wildlife and Fishery Science and a minor in Forestry. Mark uh, works full time as Executive Director of the Tennessee Chapter of the Isaac Walton League of America. Uh, since 2000, he has been employed with this nonprofit organization, which addresses cons- conservation issues, specifically water co- quality in Knox, Knoxville and the surrounding area. Today, he's going to present uh, Forrest Pritchard's Gaining Ground. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for the introduction. The book starts out with struggles. Maintain a full time farm. So you can imagine the trouble with trying to run a a contemporary farm with competition with mass produced food and distributors. And, you know, Forrest Pritchard, the young man who, getting out of college, you know, he wanted to make a positive change for the family farm and continue that business. He he was the seventh generation farmer for that property, uh, hundreds of acres. And, he wanted to do it in a different way that was sustainable. And so he thought to himself, how am I going to make this work? And there were all these questions, you know, uh, where does our food come from? He really wanted to start at the basics. Or or where do we fit into this farming system? Uh, Forrest meets a guy, he does the introduction to this book called Joel Salatin, and and of all people, Bob Evans, <laughs> at a conference, Very nonchalantly, Bob is sitting next to him and and just this kind of kept to himself older gentleman and, and then he's recognized and Forest was just taken back. Couldn't believe that here was the Bob Evans with thousands of restaurants across the country. And but it was kind of ironic because getting so large, do you think Bob Evans restaurants produce food the same way that these local farmers were? But he commended everybody for being there, and he was a, a big highlight for everybody to see. But Joel Salatin was the the keynote speaker. Forrest asked the question, "Well, how do I start? How do I just?" get going, and his reply was, first have patience and determination and just focus on what you're doing. It's just not always that easy, right? It's just, okay, well, take your time and you'll succeed. Well, he said, do you, do you love to farm? And, and he said, yes, I do. He made him feel that all these obstacles would go away eventually if you just focus on the farming, stay true to what you're doing, and believe in the process. There's always going to be obstacles, I've attempted to grow a garden this year, and, and they're, they're still in pots. Uh, haven't gotten them in the ground, but they're in the sun. And I water them every day. Um, but it's tough. It takes it takes a lot of dedication on a small scale, or or even even hundreds of acres, a uh, full time job. He he certainly faced these obstacles, and he had setbacks. So there was, you know, we first started out. He was trying to make any kind of money and make ends meet, and so he thought he would cut firewood. And maybe that would turn a profit. And basically he sweats and works really hard to produce a cord of wood and deliver it in his small truck. And he gets to the lady's house who ordered it from an online ad, and she says, well, I need it around back up the stairs. He thought, wow, what am I going to do with this? So and there was really no way to access it. So he literally, two hours later, had carried all this wood up to the lady's back porch. She had health issues. And uh, obviously, he, he really, with all the time and effort he put into it, did not make a profit that day. So he had to learn. I mean, that was a good way to start, but it was just not that easy to turn around and, and quote, unquote, make a profit off something. And, and the problems continue. Uh, his truck breaks down. You know, after carrying loads of wood uh, time and again trying to make money, the truck eventually wears out. He has refrigeration issues when he starts to, to get chickens and eggs, uh, and it was just all a really tough time for him and in the story he recalls his father's attempt at uh, selling free-range chickens and they you know he bought a bunch of poults and raised them and everything was going good it was going so well that when it came time to process the chickens and sell it he where was his market he wasn't having any good response and he took chickens to his office and was trying to sell them in his dc forestry service office and they started calling him chicken man and making fun of him and, That was one story that that he tried to avoid in the planning process of producing food. And so he he ends up committing to raising grass-fed cattle and and free-range chickens to produce eggs and rotating these animals uh, around the farm to minimize impacts on the soil and the grass. You know, there would be no feedlots, and they were all free-range feeding off the pasture. No antibiotics with a sincere attention to the humane care of the animals, which, you know, I think that's a big point for people when they go to buy animals. I mean, we have a lot of people that not only love their pets, but they love wildlife. They love all living creatures, and and when people... Come to you at the farmers market if you're selling something and and it's an animal product. They want to say, "Well, how was the animal treated?" And you know, even at the supermarket, there's a niche for uh, free-range eggs at Food City or Kroger. And if you really are have that conviction enough about care for animals, then that market gets your support. And so I think that happens with all animals that are that are sold at market. And he had a tough time with that. I mean, he really realized that the animals he would be raising. He would be slaughtering and or taking to be slaughtered, and that was tough for him, but he he did everything he could to make sure there was very good care and sanitation for the animals. The first deer that went to slaughter, there was a really bad experience he He was told it was going to be a dry aged beef, which compared to wet aged beef, apparently is a lot more tender and delicious. And the process of sitting and hanging in a cool area for two weeks before being processed maintains a lot of that flavor instead of just, I guess, packing it and freezing it immediately. And so he was told by this farmer that that he would indeed dry-age it. And then he gets a call four days later, and the guy says, Your meat's ready. We've processed it. Come get it. He had a really tough time finding a butcher that would stay true to his word. And the same guy also put on uh, poor labels to the boxes the meat was packed in where it was saying not for resale <laughs> of course that was a bad blow he couldn't just repackage it and label it and and start all over so he he did end up getting the meat sold with really close relationships talking to the people that he was selling it to and in fact there was a lady who who came out a journalist to do a story about his farm this would be great he thought you know uh, i get all this great press after the interview, they walk around the farm. She asked him all these questions, and when the story comes out, she takes things out of context and and prints them in a way that really doesn 't shine a good light on his farm and his operation. Uh, basically, the meat tastes like dirt. It was just not very good and, and i I certainly can understand uh, words being taken out of context by the media uh, but fortunately that didn't really, um, that didn 't really hamper his efforts at at that point. And really about those relationships he was making, he had a he had a sincere interest in building that. And I think if you all shop at farmer's markets or know people that grow food, those relationships are very important. And, and people want to return to not only support you, but as you learn more about the product they're selling, it becomes much more intimate than just going picking up something at the store. So, at the first farmer's market, he ended up going to. He sold very little. It was, it was very disappointing. But he he ends up having a, a ranch hand show up from a neighboring farm named Travis, and Travis was uh, very experienced. But even with that added extra help, the bills were piling up, and and maintenance costs and operation costs. It was it was all becoming too much for for him to handle at the time. And really that was mostly those costs and equipment and upkeep was a lot to do with, with hay production. The hay was costing so much, and he, he learned from other, another farmer nearby that he went out and bought the hay instead of producing it himself. And that savings of the equipment and fuel and time ended up being able to just go buy the hay. But that was in his family that was never an option you just made your own hay. you didn't go buy it from somebody but when you start looking and crunching the numbers and figuring out then it made sense to to take that cost away uh he he, he called himself a selective vegetarian which he says on, is only eating meat that he raises and so he said it had been two years since he'd had any pork products. But he realized that there was a huge demand for pork. Being here in the southeast, we can all uh, understand that. But so he started raising these pigs. That was the next addition to the farm. And they described the little 50-pound pigs as watermelons with legs. I thought that was pretty, pretty cute. And I loved the, the phrase. He said that pig snouts are, are engineering marvels. It made me automatically think of, um, back in 2008, I was spending time in South Carolina to, at the, the newest national park called Congaree National Park. I don't know if any of you know where that's at, but it's really just a, it's just a huge wetland area. You know, there's no fences around national parks, and there's a lot of feral hog hunting. They're very invasive and do a tons of damage to flora and fauna. There was renewed interest in the ivory-billed woodpecker uh, that, that some hunters may have seen it or heard it and caught a fuzzy picture. And so the Nature Conservancy had sponsored this this project to go down and look for it. And I, I volunteered. It sounded like a great, great time. And uh, it was wintertime. I would never spend time in this swamp in the summertime. It would be completely full of moccasins and mosquitoes. And so I volunteered. Nonetheless, uh, back on point, the the feral hogs had done so much damage. Probably, I would say, a full 40% of areas I walked had been rooted to the point that, you know, I found crayfish turned over with, with young just freezing because they'd been rooted up out of the ground, salamanders, eggs. I mean, anything, you know, pigs are omnivores, and they'll eat just about anything, and they, they do a, a ton of damage. And so that's what he was seeing on his farm, and uh, they they turned over the soil within within days, you know, a, a small area where they were being confined. He ended up figuring and wondering to himself, can I just rotate these animals around like I do The chickens and the cattle, and and it ended up working out. There was just a system there. We had going, and the soil had time to replenish itself. In fact, at one point, when he came back around with the cattle herd to a part of the farm that he hadn't been in a while and opened the gates, he thought it was going to be just this desolate uh, moonscape where it had been trodden down, but it was actually flourishing with flowers and clover and all this because the the pigs did act as a as a till if you will and plow and move the soil around but then they kept moving and they weren't able to just beat it down completely so that was promising but uh it was still a very tough time you know his parents early on told him and scoffed at the idea that he was going to Carry on the, the family farm. They'd been in the red for years and hadn't had much success. They took other jobs elsewhere in D.C. and in, in the area to make ends meet. Uh, but but you know he he stuck with it nonetheless. And he, he did attend a, a conference in D.C. and was encouraged by his girlfriend Nancy to apply for it and attend one more farmers market. I mean at this point he was really just really just kind of running out of hope and. But this one was in Arlington, uh, the biggest market he would have attended at this time. And so he relented and said, all right, I'll give it another go. And he made good money there. It went really well, and he sold out a lot of his product. In fact, most all of it ended up being excited about the results and, and ready to go back briefly he decided to raise goats but that didn't turn out very well uh as he said he loved the animals but they were the most cantankerous animal hard to control and and just all over the place and the the family started coming back together Uh, his sister betsy moved back they they ended up raising sheep so here's another animal added to the farm they knew that there was a, a good market for lamb meat She was going to manage that because he was already spread so thin, Uh, and it sold very well. So once they had the rotation going and the the grasses were flourishing, there was this one pig, though, that that had been giving him trouble. He and uh, Travis could never corral the animal through different chutes to get into the trailer to go to the slaughterhouse. And, and it happened time after time again. It was months and weeks and even years went by and the pig started to become somewhat of a local celebrity. He was pushing up there. Normal pigs going to slaughter were around 250 pounds, I believe. And, and this, this pig was over 500 pounds. And then, one terrible day, the, the pig actually got very aggressive with him and started chasing him across the field. It was all he could do to get away, and he knew that there were no trees around. Uh, and he, he did finally reach the forest edge and found a tree that he was unsure would actually hold him up. And by this time, the pig was 700 pounds. He barely got up in the tree, and the pig jumped up and was just looking up at him, wanting to do harm, I'm certain. That was a big moment, uh, a scary moment. He he ended up coming down vertical 10 feet and, and ended up breaking his ankle, actually. After that instance, the pig had wandered off, but one of the butcher's guys came down and actually just shot the pig from afar with a rifle. So that was the end of Blackie, uh, unfortunately. But so you know they were they were gaining attention in the region and because their farm was so successful and they were doing it so against the grain they we weren't using any chemicals or fertilizers or anything and this was unheard of back at that time or it was becoming a slow trend I should say and people that know a lot more about farming could attest to to how things have moved in that direction against contemporary farming styles because a lot of small family farms are just going under and and being acquired by larger entities or or just selling out for subdivisions so the risk of taking that chance was was paying off big time so this was 5 years into the journey. Apparently, that's kind of the make it or break it number. 5 years in any business if if you're still surviving after that time period and you're succeeding then then you're you're doing something really right and 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 hopefully stable at that point, but if you if you don't last that long, that's just kind of for whatever reason that was the magic number he mentioned, but they branched out. I mean, here another creative growth of the family business. His wife Nancy started uh, Smith Meadows Kitchen, and she was making her own pasta, homemade pasta and sauces. And uh, as as risky as as it was, they took a chance and started selling that. At the markets at well, and it and it did well. It was that same year his father died of a heart attack, which was very ironic because he lived around all this healthy food, and he helped with the farm, and he helped with the farmer's market. But years of having a desk job in D.C., working for the Forest Service, and just eating trash food, uh, snacks, and, and sodas, and not ever listening to his son, his son would always try to remind him, Dad, you're here try these delicious fruits that you see at the market every day or instead of going for the pastry that the baker has or you know he would constantly talk to him about eating healthier but his weight had ballooned up to 350 pounds and and he ended up having a heart attack so the farm was very successful there were no concrete feed lots no antibiotics no supplements laced with hormones this was the very definition of slow food As I entered my late 20s, I found myself moving at a more tranquil pace as well, finding a rhythm with the subtle change of the seasons. My definition of success began to fall out of step with the anxious hustle of modern life. This wasn't new age thinking. It wasn't friends or alternative. It wasn't left wing or right, and it certainly wasn't a contemporary fad. It was the way we were on our terms, successfully growing food, lots of food. I sometimes lay on my back in the soft, clean pasture, staring up at the blue sky, relaxing while the animals placidly grazed around me. The air was fresh and the pastures thick and green. The cattle sniffed curiously at my boots, my hat and my outstretched fingertips. This version of productivity ran contrary to every business book I'd ever read. Instead of taking, we were leaving. Green space was restored to the landscape, and airborne carbon was recycled into the earth, building new topsoil for future fertility. We were literally gaining ground. It was an equation of increasing returns. So, obviously, things were going well, but there was still this barrier of price quality association. Seems to be overlooked with food. I mean, we, let's see if I can find that section if it mentions it. People are willing to pay much more for expensive cars and luxury hotels, but for paying for better quality food is a harder sell because it can be bought cheap elsewhere. And that—that that very much is a reality. And people just don't understand. Why do you want to charge me four dollars for a dozen eggs, or, or even five bucks? I don't know what the going rate is down to market, but uh, you know you're paying for that quality. Here's another excerpt. For some reason, even to this day, food has largely escaped this price-quality association. Dom Perignon aside, food is more or less food. Although none of my friends said it out loud, I could tell what was on their minds. Food was supposed to be cheap. Society had conditioned them to expect bargains when they entered the supermarket, placing price above freshness and quality. My sausages might cost only a dollar or more per pound, but for many people, it might as well have been a million. When it came to food, the price tag was where the story both began and ended. So I guess many of you can attest to that as you go to the markets and try to bring yourselves to spend a few extra dollars, but I think we all certainly support the quality. It's impossible to make any money selling these quality foods at market rates because government subsidies and mega farms and distributors make it unfair. Basically, it was really a successful time for the family. It was the mentality to say, well, let's get bigger. Let's grow larger. Let's add more. But ultimately, I think they reached their production and were content with what they were producing. They finally succeeded, got to this point where they're digging out of debt, trying to pay off the farm. The, the mother had ended up selling a lot of her assets and, and pension and, and being able to give it to the farm to to kill some of this debt from the bank. And and everybody lived happily ever after. <laughs> uh, that, that's pretty much the book. Uh, I, I want, you know, other than a book report, I mean, I wanted to try to have some dialogue if anybody, you know, has a a question or, you know, I know serving on Food Policy Council, which, you know, unfortunately I can't attend the regular meetings as much due to work and, and they hold their meetings during the work day, But I know the people on the council are, I mean, it's a, it's an incredible Food Policy Council that's been around longer than any in the country as far as I know. And the people working on these issues that face Knoxville and Knox County and our region doing an incredible job. We just passed an ordinance uh, supporting, and it'll be on second reading at next council meeting, kind of cleaning up of urban agricultural laws and trying to make it easier for people to farm in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and really just, again, make everything a little more cut and dry because there was some vagueness there. And I've always told the policy Council, I mean, I want to continue to promote policy change at the city level, and, and of course, conversely, in the county level, to make urban agriculture as easy as possible. I mean, there's always going to be concerns of sanitation and chickens running around wild. Those concerns a few years ago when we passed the chicken ordinance, I haven't heard anybody complaining necessarily, I know, except the people that want to have chickens, which there are some regulations in place for a purpose, but... You know, I've always wondered could we is it is it possible by like 2020 to have 20% of our school's food be local? I don't know. I've, I've mentioned that before, and I don't know how hard that is. But uh, I, if anybody has insight to why we couldn't do something like that, other than contracts and people that manage, the, we get food. I'm assuming through Cisco and other sources. That, that but but the tide is changing. I mean, you you know, I bought a, a Granger County tomato at Food City the other day. I know that's not crazy new, but you know why we should have more Knox County tomatoes um, or or regional local foods and food. sources. So I think things are getting better. The market's catching up. People like Food City or Kroger are starting to support local farmers and buy their products as well. So to think about how does Knoxville or Knox County fit into these concepts that, that I just talked about from the book and you know, what are your all's Local farmers market experiences. I'd, I'd certainly love to hear from anybody that has a little, a few questions. Erin Gill here with uh, Office of Sustainability has asked her to attend to to answer any tough questions, especially detailed ordinance questions that she would know a lot more about. And, and Fiona is here from the county, and she may be able to help me as well. So,
1: hey Mark, uh, sounds like an interesting book, and uh, interesting presentation as well. Thank you. But I had someone ask me about the city ordinance. If there was any concern, the food, the veggies and fruits and all that would be sold would be local but not necessarily organic. And there was some concern about in older neighborhoods if there was any lead in the soil and that would be transferred to the fruits and vegetables. I guess that, that kind of thing's not regulated. I guess you just take your chances
0: on it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's certainly a great question about when you don't have any kind of oversight or um you know you, you've got food going straight from a neighborhood producer to a consumer I, I don't know what checks and balancers are in place for those types of health risks you know leach it and things like that are certainly possible i remember when i first moved into our home in '05, i put a a bed out with with railroad ties around it and then i thought rather quickly it took a while but i'd started some asparagus and i thought well you know they got creosote in them, and what if that creosote breaks down and gets in the soil and grows into the asparagus I'm eating? So that was a certainly a valid concern, but I, I don't know if you all can answer those questions. Yeah, I can, I can say that.
2: Uh, and, and I'll say too that there's a lot of folks in this room who know a lot more about the agricultural practices than I do, but um, we did look at that issue because it is an important one. And essentially, the way that we've defined these new ordinances, you have your personal garden and a community garden and a market garden. So the only one that starts to become really business-like is that market garden, and that goes through a much more intensive use and review. And so there's also, of course, the the line in the sand where you become a business versus a hobby. And so to that degree, there are then some regulations in place to start to look at the product that you're creating. But it would be a very radical change for a local government uh, to start looking at That level of detail on private property. It is the reason why we don't currently allow community gardens on city property without a pretty extensive liability policy. And we know that that's a barrier for a lot of folks, and it's something that we're looking at changing, but it's that product, and what is that product? What is the liability of that product that's thrown our risk managers and our lawyers for a little bit of a loop because we want to recognize that? Um, One of the things that the Office of Sustainability, in addition to just the ordinances, um, is working on our resources, and there's a lot of resources already in the community that we want to make sure we connect folks with that talk about that type of best practice being very uh, specific in that language of saying, you know, look, there are soil tests available. UT, Ag Extension, I think, can do them for pretty cheap. So trying to let folks know that those resources are out there. And and as you do embark, especially in a community garden or a market garden, something that's a little bit more oriented around giving that produce to someone else, that that you make sure you know what you're getting into. And Fiona's going to add that, too. (laughs) Okay, I would just add to that that um, most people
3: don't realize produce isn't inspected or regulated. The burden is on the grocery store. So it's important to know when you go to a farmer's market to talk to your farmer because there's no guarantee they've done a soil test either and you don't know where they're growing their food. So having that conversation is just really important no matter where you're getting your food. So whether it's urban or rural, we have rural brown fields as well. It's just really important. The, The new Food Safety Modernization Act it has exemptions for small farmers which a lot of people support so again it's just all about knowing what the practices of that farmer are and unless they're certified organic there's no guarantee of how what their growing practices are there's no inspection necessarily
0: yeah we just i mean uh, there's an added cost to anything like that if you're going to add a soil test but but you're right i mean even I don't know to what degree extension agents will test for lead per se. I mean, I, I guess it's out there. Um, yeah, it kind of makes me think of eating fish in certain bodies of water. The state has regulations on uh, recommendations on how much largemouth bass you should eat out of Fort Loudon or or any uh, of the reservoirs. Which, honestly, just as a side note, you know, I would I would eat fish out of downtown if. Uh, if I caught one, it just depends on the size and the species. I mean, you're talking about fish that are perseverous and they eat other fish. I wouldn't eat a catfish or any bottom-dwellers drum or anything like that. But a sauger, you know, um, any things that there is that bioaccumulation and you don't, unless you're just eating it every day and I assume it's similar to, to vegetables that could potentially could have uptake of hazardous materials.
1: Uh, you mentioned that the uh, farmer did really well selling his meat products in Arlington. Mm-hmm. Did the book indicate if that why that might have been? Is it because it was just a much larger market, or because people were more enlightened about food sources?
0: I don't know if it exactly explained it, but I I'd assume it was a little bit of both. I think the population and the density of people in that area was greater, um, and and then getting a getting into a bigger city where you may have more affluent folks with money. That, that don't spend that extra few dollars here and there. Um, I think that was also part of the reason that he did so well at that particular location. It was the biggest one he'd he'd set up at. And, and there was another one, um, you know, it's so densely populated around D.C. and the suburbs that, you know, there's markets, uh, Alexandria, um, you know, a lot of areas where people have plenty of money and they're willing to buy quality food. You know, his friends give him a hard time about being this, you know, high-end food producer. And he takes the example, why don't you spend the months and months it takes to grow these beans or whatever and go try to sell them at the, at the same market rate that you get them at higher quantity, provided fruits from ADM or whoever. I mean, it's just – uh, there was a lady at one of the f- farmer's markets that was like, never wholesale. I mean, she repeated it so much and just – pointed at him, she said, listen, if you're going to survive in this business, you have got to sell retail and don't be scared to ask for the price there are people there and when he got to the different markets where it was a larger arlington or wherever um you know he ended up selling more in his first transaction the guy bought you know a couple pounds of beef he got four pounds of chicken and uh and a two dozen eggs and it was like 25 dollars. and he was just blown away because that was more than he made in the whole time at his local or uh, near his home market um Again, I think, you know, these people that are out here today selling their products need to hold the line and believe in the system and and keep doing what they're doing. Uh, People will will spend the money. Any other questions? Well, thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.